What happens when you lose your childhood and you lose your parents to mental illnesses, and yet your job is to get up in front of people and show them a good time? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. You're listening to a song called South Side of Heaven. It's by Ryan Bingham. When I download, I want you put my soul up on the train. Won't you send it southbound? Give the cool blues man name. I've been lost on them back roads so many times I've gone blind I'm losing faith in my family had driven me out of my damn mind My name is Ryan Bingham and we are in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the Fine Line Music Venue uh, I guess we're downtown, right? Ryan Bingham has released six studio albums and one live album. He's won an Oscar for Best Original Song. His music is beautiful, sometimes inspirational, and often more than a little sad. And he's about the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. I caught up with Ryan when he came through Minneapolis on tour. He doesn't really have a hometown. You know, I was born in, in Hobbs, New Mexico. You know, I left there when I was four or five years old and kind of hit the trail from there. We went to... Bakersfield, California for several years. And then from there, we moved back to Texas, uh, Midland and Odessa. And then we went to Houston. Makes you wonder why he moved so much. Then I came back to New Mexico. And then I went back to Houston. And then I went to Laredo, Texas on the border. Military family? Nope. I went to Stephenville, Texas from there. Fort Worth and then Austin, and now back to L.A., and so. What was the reason for moving around so much when you were a kid? Uh, my, it was my, my parents, you know. I think my dad couldn't hold down a job, and, you know, we'd, bills weren't getting paid, and, you know, the lights were getting shut off, and we were getting evicted and having to move on to the next town. A lot of people think the word trauma means one sudden upsetting event, a car crash, an act of violence. What gets talked about a lot less often is complex trauma. That's when trauma is spread out, like in an entire childhood spent without a stable place to live and without stable parents. They were really good people deep down inside, you know, and it wasn't that they were malicious or anything like that. It was, I think they had a lot of demons, you know, and uh, they were really young when they got married. Um, from that area that we're from, it seems like there are a lot of familiar stories like that with other people and families, just a really kind of hard area, you know, from when people homesteaded out there, covered wagons, and I think you just kind of really had to get tough or die kind of a place, you know. There's not a lot of room for kind of sympathy and things and maybe empathy and things like that. It's just kind of like barreling through. I don't know. But, uh, you know, just my parents in general, they're always really kind of charismatic people. My, my father was a like star quarterback player, won state championships. My mother was the head cheerleader. They were homecoming king and queen and kind of had this real bright future, I think, ahead of them. And. We moved when we were pretty young, you know, out to California. And from there, it just seemed like they started kind of chasing their tails. I mean, a lot of drugs and alcohol involved and, you know, probably, you know, psychological things as well. So I think there were... Psychological things that they were 
treating or deadening with the, the drugs and alcohol? Definitely not treating. Oh, yeah. yeah, we're treating with, you know, alcohol. They're Self-medicating. You know, yeah. yeah, you know, the therapy, you know, only crazy people went to go see therapists. <laughs> <laughs> there was a ranch in New Mexico that had been in Ryan's dad's family for a few generations, a stable plot of land, a home. But the family sold it off when Ryan was young. Yeah, that's really all I ever wanted to do. You know, I... I um, um, I really looked up to my a lot of the men in my family as a young boy, you know. My dad had two brothers, so I had three, two uncles and a grandfather, and they were all cowboys, and they all ranched, and they all kind of brought me up in that and to the junior rodeos. And so I really looked up to them, and that's all I wanted to do was kind of cowboy and all that. And even after uh, my grandfather sold the ranch, and um, I think that all kind of went away, and we moved, and we were all working in the oil fields. My dad very much was—he uh, always talked about the ranch, you know. And he and he was always like, he kind of put that in me, you know. Rodeo runs in his family, and junior rodeo is a big deal in Texas. You can get involved early. The youngest age division is listed as eight and under. I loved it. Well, it kind of gave me a chance of kind of fulfilling this. Uh, part of like this identity that I think I was searching for to be like my uncles and my dad and my grandfather, you know, so without kind of the ranch and having that day-to-day thing, but that was so much what everybody carried around them. And this is kind of what I was craving, you know, I would still kind of find odd jobs or hang out with other people that around on ranches and farms and was got into the junior rodeo stuff. So it really just kind of gave me a sense of purpose, you know, and something that was, maybe a little bit constant that I could hold on to, you know, as a young kid, like just because everywhere you move and all this stuff. And it was just like, I, you're in a new town, there's new kids. But I had, I had those, some part of my identity I could at least take with me and try to be an individual in some sense. So what were your events? I rode bulls. You rode bulls. Yeah, I did. Why did you focus on bulls? Well, we moved so much. I couldn't afford to have a horse, you know, to do some of those other events you had to, have a mountain and so it was pretty easy for me just to grab a rigging bag with my spurs and you know and jump in someone else's truck and go down the road with them so it just kind of made sense and then my uncle rode bulls and and uh you know I looked up to him a lot so it just kind of felt like I don't know and once I did it and kind of got semi good at it I started craving it quite a bit and I liked it what did you like about it just the rush it was just um I remember being just so terrified the first time I I did it and just kind of maybe overcoming that fear. And um, it just kind of did something for my, I think my self-esteem and all of that stuff. And just, um, it gave me a kind of a a purpose and an identity and I craved it. And I got uh, got fairly decent at it there for, for a while when I was younger. Ryan's dad was around physically sometimes, but with the drugs and the booze, he wasn't available much. But his uncle, Clay Bingham, was. Clay was a retired rodeo star. There's just a few little things that he would kind of tell me how to prepare my mind for those situations, you know. And um, one was like trying to be confident in yourself and but not be cocky, you know, and uh, in an egotistical kind of way. But when you're doing that stuff, something that can possibly... Uh, you can die from doing that. Yeah. So, uh, 
it's uh it's not I think I can, it's I will and I know I know I can. Kind of an attitude towards that when you when you're kind of doing something like that. Did you get more of a connection with your dad when you were doing rodeo? Did you get approval from him? Did you find common ground? You know, and from my uncle too, like they would haul me to all those junior rodeos, either my dad or my uncle or both of them, you know, and they were kind of maybe living vicariously through it too, some, you know, because I I started noticing that I thought that they were having maybe more fun than I was, you know, (laughs) because we would always go to the bar afterwards. Uh (laughs) So so as long as I keep getting on this bull, everything is fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's a hell of a way to... It was a pretty good party afterwards somewhere. something that that is common with kids who grew up in unstable families or neglectful situations is that they have a hard time relaxing when they go into somewhere because they're sort of looking around for threats oh man because you've got to survive yeah (laughs) right yeah any any place like the the bank was the worst because I used to be terrified to go in there with my dad because I thought we were going to get arrested. He would always take me places when I was a kid like that, I think, trying to get sympathy for, like if he was going in there trying to borrow a thousand bucks or something, or we'd go to some pawn shop to pawn a bunch of crap, or like, I remember he had- uh, You were a prop. Stolen a bunch of oil field equipment one time. And I didn't know this at the time, but I realized now that it was because he'd gotten me and a buddy, one of my buddies in high school, uh, there was older than me that had a driver's license, had a truck, and he's like, hey, I, you know, I need you guys to take this stuff down here to this guy who's going to buy this equipment I got, you know. And <laughs> sure, Dad, I'll help you yeah. fence stolen goods. Yeah. Still, it took a while to piece together that things were not normal or okay. Did it seem like something screwed up to you at the time? No, I didn't. You know, it very much just kind of felt like and seemed like, well, everybody kind of probably goes through this or this way. And our parents very much made it seem that way, too. You know, it wasn't until kind of later on when we got older and or when I did, you know, and I kind of look back on it and I'm like, that wasn't all. (laughs) That's not how I want to continue to live my life. Yeah. I don't want to put my kids through that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, it didn't really seem out of normal when it's when it's happening. Yeah. You know, and realizing more and more as I've gotten older that it was very abnormal. Part of that was we moved around so much and a lot of people never really knew what was going on, including, I think, you know, my grandparents and other family members that were close to us, but not close in a way because my parents always moved us around, I think, to kind of um, avoid that exposure of what their kind of situation really was about and with the drug use and not you know, the alcoholism and things like that. And um, very much kind of using me and my sisters like a way of enabling that, you know. How did they ena- um, How did they use you to enable that? Well, I don't know about using us, but we weren't like, we were too young to really know how to, to expose that, you know, and it was the, easy for them to keep us quiet. Yeah. Know, saying, ah, you know, probably don't tell grandma and grandpa about this or don't tell uncle so-and-so about this, you know, and nobody really needs to know our business. And we'd move from town to town and be new people. And we'd be there as long as till people, I think, got hip to my old man's game, you know, and, and then, like, we'd have to move. Despite the upheaval of childhood, Ryan developed skills, bull riding, yes, and also music. I found music through my mother, actually. She had bought me a guitar when I was about 16 years old. We were living in Houston, and we uh, 
moved to Laredo down on the border short after that and um, had this guitar kind of sitting around for a year or so never really I was always interested in it but it was just overwhelmed with learning how to play it and didn't really have anyone around kind of with any kind of instruction or any example until we moved to Laredo and this guy started coming around hanging out with my dad and uh, he usually had a you know revolving doors of characters that would come through the house you know <laughs> <laughs> Those afternoon uh, happy hours that started early, right? Continued to you know early. Come hours. into the living room. There's some guy there. Yeah, you know what do you bring over? What are you smoking? Or you know, right, right. <laughs> what are you snorting? Kind of a thing. And uh, but this fella came over and he saw that guitar and picked it up and started playing this mariachi music and. Uh, could just really play and I'm like wow you know I didn't know that that guitar could make those kinds of sounds you know and and I think he saw that I was interested in that and he said you know you want you want to learn how to play this thing and I said yeah and he he showed me this song called La, La Malaganya and that was it and that was the first song he taught me he would just teach me one little part of it and uh he'd say all right if you you know practice that little part and next week I'll come back for a happy hour again, you know, and <laughs> I'll show you the next part of it. And, you know, after a month or so went by, I could put all those parts together and there was like a finger picking, you know, part. There was one part that was strumming a few chords. So it was kind of an interesting song to learn from the start because it had a few different uh, techniques and styles within that one song that kind of... I mean, that's been my foundation on for everything that I even do now, I think. Just the way I strum a guitar, the guitar, the picking patterns that I'll, that I'll use and things. So it's all from that one song. It's all from that one song, yeah. What an incredible act of kindness by that guy. Yeah, you know, and I don't know necessarily knew if he realized what he was doing at the time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm sure he did, you know. I think he saw, genuinely saw that I was interested in it, and he took the time to sit down with me and show me, and I'm... And, uh, Pretty grateful for that. As Ryan was getting old enough to get out on his own, he had a bit of a push. You know, I, knew, I realized something was really wrong. One day I came home and um, and we'd moved up to Stephenville. And my dad, uh, I'd walked in the house and I'd walked in the bathroom and there was just hair like all over the ground. And I'm like, what the? What's going on here? You know, I go in the bathroom and there's a pair of like clippers plugged into the wall where somebody obviously gave themselves a haircut. <laughs> and then I go in the living room and my dad's sitting there and he's got his head shaved. And uh, he's talking like uh, that guy in the movie off a of sling blade. You know? uh -huh. He's sitting over in the corner and it's all dark and I'm just going like, what is going on around here? And, and, it, and uh, he tells me that he's got cancer and his hair all fell out. And you're like, no, it's over there. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, what's all this? And then he just goes nuts and just telling me that, like, how can you not believe me and this and that. And and so there was, like, that kind of stuff going on. How now. old were you, were you when that happened? I think I was 17. You know? Yeah. That's right about that. That's kind of the moment where I'm like, I'm out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to go. You yeah. Know? And thankfully, I was old enough where I could, you know. And I just started living with friends. So Ryan Bingham leaves the instability to spend all his time with things he could count on. Music and big mean bowls. You know, I was on the road going to these rodeos all the time on the weekends mainly and with friends. And I would started hauling this guitar around with me. And, you know, I, I didn't always end up kind of sitting in the parking lot playing on the tailgate, you know, for, for, just for friends and things like that. And kind of became... 
kind of something for all of us to do. And, um, and it got to where, like, after these rodeos, there would be quite a few people show up in the parking lot to hear me play, you know, a few songs to where uh, some of the, the producers that were putting on the rodeos and even some of the local bar owners were like, man, why don't you... Why is nobody coming to the bars? Because they're all in the parking lot listening to you. So they started trying to get me to come play in the bars to bring everybody over there, you know? Yeah. And so that's how I started getting gigs. And it was really kind of uh, something that just organically happened. And then before long, it was like, I had a bar that was offering me a couple hundred bucks to go play a gig or, you know, I drew up, you know, at those rodeos, you get, you draw the bulls. You don't get to pick which one you get on. And, Sometimes, man, you draw the, those just bad ones that, you know, are going to hurt you and are really mean and, you know, they have a reputation and you're like, you know, if you draw a really good one that you can win the bull ride on, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to that one. But you draw a bad one and you're like, uh, I'm going to go here and play the guitar tonight. <laughs> <laughs> the music got better. The crowds got larger. The bulls didn't get any nicer. So the next decision wasn't that hard. Well, I was, I was pretty used to life on the road and traveling all the time with the rodeo stuff. So um, the music stuff I felt was pretty easy. You know, it's like you'd, I used to drive 10 hours to go get on a bull that could possibly stomp my teeth out in my life, you know. So to drive 10 hours to play guitar for an hour for and drink beer with a bunch of people, I was like, <laughs> I was like if this is as good as it gets, I've got it made, you know. <laughs> I guess when you start with bulls, wait, is there going to be a bull at the venue? Yeah. No? Yeah, am I going to get my ass kicked when I get there? The chances go from 80% to 50, you know. <laughs> you still might get beat up in the parking lot, but it won't be by a bull, you know. So, neat. You're young, talented, playing music, not getting stomped by a bull. Everything's fine. But not really. Because Ryan hadn't really dealt with the complex trauma, and trauma gets into your bones, right? And Ryan had no vocabulary for what had happened and didn't really know what to do next. I think I was pretty lost, you know. I mean, I don't think I know I was. The guitar was really something that became an outlet for me to really vent and talk about all of that stuff and get things off my chest that I didn't talk about with other people. And that, you know, going back to that area, you know, people don't talk about anything like that, like conversation, you know. I mean, I don't. It's just not like in the culture. I don't, you know, or I don't really, never really experienced it much growing up. Um, and so the guitar really kind of just bit, became a way to deal with things. But at the same time, I think I was very misplaced, still searching for my identity in ways. Cause like I, especially when the guitar thing came, cause it was like, well, I'm gonna do this cowboy thing or am I a musician now? Does that mean that they're both of these things? Um, what kind of music am I, am I playing country music or folk or, you know, all those lines were so blurred and um, especially in the country world. So, cause I wasn't into any mainstream kind of that thing or the image of that or all of that. I really related a lot more to the blues and the punk rock stuff and the rock and roll thing. And, but at the same time I was playing these bars up to the rodeos where it was full of cowboys. So to get a gig, I'd just, you know, I'd have to kind of have that, thing going on you know you talk about how the people you were around in texas and in rodeo and and among these musicians that you were with don't really talk about uh things that go wrong with your mind mm -hmm. but then you've got hank williams and you've got blues music you got punk rock music mm -hmm. and it, it's it almost seems like that's the way 
those conversations are happening. Yeah. But it doesn't get acknowledged off of off the stage or after the show? Not much. It didn't really seem like for me. And maybe it's partly to myself just growing up that way. And I just didn't really talk about stuff either, you know. I don't think I really talked about much till I met my wife and we started having those conversations and then I went and got help on my own and kind of learned how to talk about that stuff, you know, had those kind of tools to learn how to talk about it. Ryan is married to Anna Axter. She's a filmmaker, and way back when Ryan was a pretty obscure musician, she heard a demo of his songs and wanted to use one for a film she made. So she finally tracked me down in this little bar we were playing at in L.A., and just waited till we got done and was like, had this piece of paper asking me Ready if I to could go. sign this release for the song. And um, I was like, yeah, but uh, let's go have a drink first and talk about it. That's how we met. Yeah. Was when it. was that? That was it. It was um, about 12 years ago. We'll be married 10 years this year. So okay. a couple of years before that. So you were married and you said that, that you went out and got some help on your own finally for mm-hmm. your mind. Um, what prompted that? She did, okay. you know, definitely. You know, kind of gave me that encouragement to go try it. I think just she grew up in such a different way where her, she in a pretty tight family with, you know, four siblings that they did all talk about everything and it was a very tight thing. And so um, I'm sure for her to kind of see how I grew up and to meet and see that situation, um, she came at it from a different perspective. And then when both of my parents passed on the way, she went through all of that with me as well and um, was at the other end of that. So it was after my uh, so my mother passed away first and then my, my father and then... And when was that? Um, it was right around the one time when I won the Oscars. Oh my God. So it was my m- mother right before that and then after that, my father. Yep. His mom dies, he wins an Academy Award, and then his father dies. Life deals Ryan some cards and then says, okay, play that hand. Here's a bit of the song, The Weary Kind. Ryan co-wrote it for the film Crazy Heart, starring Jeff Bridges. He won an Oscar, a Grammy, a Golden Globe, and a Critics' Choice Award. Your heart's on the loose you rolled them sevens with nothing to lose This ain't no place for the weary kind You called all your shots Coming up, Ryan Bingham gets help, learns some lessons, and changes his tune. That's in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is serious. The good news, people can and do recover. They get help, and that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. 
Back with Ryan Bingham, singer and songwriter. Remember, Ryan said most of his songs, especially the earlier ones, were about the life he was living, which had been one of upheaval, neglect, drugs, and alcohol, and also bulls trying to kill him. This is off his first album, Mescalito, a track called Hard Times. I mean, it's all there. Daddy wakes up in a liquor store. Write what you know. In 2007, Ryan Bingham lost his mother. Just a few years later, in 2010, he won an Oscar. And soon after that, he lost his father. Can you share how your parents died? Yeah. Um, my mother uh, was hospitalized for cirrhosis of the liver for alcohol, for drinking. And um, she needed a liver transplant, but they wouldn't put her on the list to get a transplant unless she quit drinking. And she wouldn't quit drinking, so she basically drank herself to death. And then my father committed suicide not long after that, after the Oscars, he shot himself. After you won an Oscar? Mm-hmm. What did that do to you? Uh, you know, did what it'd probably do to anybody else. You know, it just pretty crushed me, you know. I mean, both of them. Losing, I think, losing your people like that. But uh, it had been an ongoing thing for several years. I hadn't spoken to my dad in a couple of years and my mom, you know, it was just so brutal to see her because she was like, um, you know, you'd see her and her gums would be bleeding and stuff like that, you know, and just to see kind of them, they were in bad shape, you know, for a few years before that. Were just, they still together when they died? No, they'd split up and um, I don't think that was any better for me because they were, you know, not only did they have their problems and with all of that stuff, but I think they were pretty heartbroken over losing each other over it, you know? Yeah. And then me and my sister both kind of had to get away from it just to survive, you know? Did you feel guilt when they died? Yeah, you know, and they, we did. I did, yeah. And that was, there was not ever really uh, any physical abuse at home, but there was a lot of kind of emotional abuse stuff where there were a lot of guilt trips and things, uh, you know, were kind of put on us, you know, I think and my sister as well, just like, well, this wouldn't be happening if y'all didn't do this or something like that, you know, it's just, but this is kind of that drunk talk and, you know, whatever yeah. it is. But uh, that was something that definitely had, it took me a long time to get out of the guilt of all of that stuff that you put on yourself. As a kid, well, when maybe I could have done something different to help. Maybe I could have, you know, taken them to another halfway house or got tried harder to get them into rehab or whatever. Um, and it, it took a while to kind of say, you know, that wasn't my fault. There wasn't anything I don't think that I could have done. He could play music, so he did that. Today, he thinks back on what that music sounded like. The place I was in before was just... Uh, very misplaced, very confused, very just sad, you know. I think I was, you know, losing my parents and just the situation. And um, I was very poor, like, and I didn't really have, didn't have an education, didn't know what I was going to do in life, um, didn't know where I was going to go, you know. I just kind of had this guitar and some songs and, and a prayer, you know. Like, and so you're just singing about the situation. It was just like in the rodeo days. You're just singing yeah, about the situation. Know, I was right? just... I guess singing the blues, you know, and just yeah. trying to survive. And uh, I was drinking a lot too. I drank 
like a fish and smoked a ton of weed and just tried to suppress it all. Didn't talk about anything with anybody and just hit the road and was running as hard and fast as I could from all of it. And would go, you know, no matter how far away I would get, whether it was Paris, France or Australia, you know, all that stuff would just follow me everywhere. And uh, I think at some point I realized that I couldn't, that wasn't gonna work. And when I met my wife and our relationship started to grow and and all of a sudden I had this person in my life that was constant and that loved me and that I loved them and that I trusted and I knew that it was all that it was just like that was something I hadn't had in a long time. Yeah. Where you don't and, have uh, to worry about it. Yeah. And uh we bought a house together, we had two kids and we got a dog and we started building our own family again. You know, I kinda got some people back in my life yeah. that I'd lost. Family is great. Dogs are great, but they won't necessarily resolve all the issues in your past. It was just after my father had uh, passed away. I was just, it was just, it was just a dark time. I was having a hard time with it. And obviously the songs that I was writing, a lot of them were about my parents too and the situation growing up. So not only did all that happen, but every night I was playing these shows and singing these songs about it. And I was in strange cities. Yeah, I was like, this has got to stop, you know. And um, or that, or I got to go start like a Led Zeppelin cover band or something. (laughs) Throw in a few ABBA covers here and there. Yeah, Yeah. like I'm just gonna play birthday parties or something. And and talking to my wife about it because yeah. obviously she was right there with me through the whole thing and um, and seeing how hard it was on me. And uh, she had a, a good friend of hers that had been to therapy before and knew a therapist close by that they really, that she really liked and had spent a lot of years with. And they're just like, man, why don't you go give it a shot? Yeah. You know, what do you got to lose kind of a thing? And I'm like, right, let's go. Yeah, how's like, the status I'm, quo working yeah. out for you? Because I didn't want, you know, I was like, I had so many f- cool, fun things going for me in life. Alone, just my relationship with my wife. And she's a very fun person to be around. And we had a lot of fun everywhere we went. But there was just all of this thing that was just this chain, you know, tied to me. And I was dragged around. And, and yeah. we were both very aware of that. Finally, he made an appointment and went in. And I talked to someone that really helped me figure out how to talk about some of that stuff and how to um, recognize why I was feeling the way I was feeling, you know? I think that's something that I was afraid of too, because growing, like I said, you know, growing up we're in a place where people say, oh, only crazy people go talk to therapists, you know, and psychologists. And so there's kind of, there was this thing of like, ah, you know, I don't, What's it all about going to talk to a therapist? You know, it's like, do they just kind of like lay you down on this couch and, you know, next thing you know, you're going to be in a straight jacket and hauled <laughs> off, you know, and, <laughs> which who knows, you know, but, um, you know, it was like, it was very much totally, uh, I didn't expect that to be the way it was. It was very easy. It was, it, and I very, I enjoyed going. Because I could tell right away, like, the difference that it made, like, of just questions. It was like I had a lot of questions that were, I couldn't get answers to. And I didn't know who to talk to to get them. And I wasn't getting them from anybody. And I, I could go in there and sit down with someone that um, uh, was qualified to answer those things for me, you know. And I, I would leave there every time and going like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. And then I would start figuring th- more, a lot more things out on my own too. You know, it was like kind of just giving me the tools to start going down that road and, and figure those things out for myself. Um, well, if you get into good therapy, you get to this point where you realize, oh, all these things that are happening aren't just spontaneously appearing. They're, yeah. they, they're all coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so then you, you know, then it's like you get a map mm-hmm. of where you're going instead of yeah. just waking up behind the wheel. Yeah, and I'd go in there and, uh, you know, after six months on the road and just kind of thinking that, uh, you know, I was going through depression and things like that and being like, why am I so, like, down on myself right now, you know? And is it just, is it uh, the songs that I'm writing or, like, there was a bad show last night or or whatever? What am I doing? And then, like, just go like, man, you're just, you're sad because your father shot himself. It's okay. That's fine. That's, you know. Yeah, of course you But are. you try to, you know, you don't, obviously you don't want to think about that every day. You know, I don't, you got to move, you know, it's like, that sometimes you just be like, you, you know, you go for weeks and weeks and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, man, I'm just not feeling very good today. And then uh, I don't know what it is. I'm just kind of in some funk, you know, and it's like, yeah, probably, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason yeah, yeah, for something it. triggers it or you'll see something or somebody will ask you about it and you'll be like, oh, yeah, you know? Yeah. And that's, I, I had to kind of learn how to learn that it's okay to be sad, too. I'm just like, well, well there's... Just sit with it for a couple hours and then see yeah. what happens. You know? Yeah, you're, you're not going to get over it. You just have to keep walking yeah. through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan's songs have become not so much happier in recent years, but more clear-eyed, more forward-thinking. This is Nothing Holds Me Down off his latest album, American Love Song. You can hear how smooth his voice is on American Love Song none of the raspiness that was his trademark earlier in his career. It's because he quit smoking. It's a very, you're very confident on the record. Like it, you know, you're, the troubles are there, but but you have more confidence. I've been having fun with it. Gosh, it was a lot of fun to do. And I wanted it to be a fun record to play. And I wanted it to be a lot of fun to, you know, when you go out on the road and you're playing it every night, like I said, for so long, those songs were so sad. You know, and I'm just up there and I'm just like by myself with the guitar and it's just like it got dark too quick. You know, I was like, I was like, man, I like the Stones too, you know, and I, I like to play Everything's guitar terrible. And I'm Ryan yeah. Bingham. Good night. Hi, see you later. Like, hope I'll be here tomorrow. You know, it's like. Getting help, really sorting out what his trauma meant and how it's with him still, that made Ryan a better dad to his young son and daughter me trying to kind of think about what that's like what life is like for a three-year-old too you know it's like when they have their moments and their different phases as they grow up and I don't really remember that as a kid and I definitely don't want to maybe handle it in a way that I was handled in some of those situations so I'm pretty thankful uh have a, a kind of you know my wife a strong partner there with me to kind of watch that stuff and I have a different uh I think just being conscious about it too, you know, I've just been like, maybe I'll, uh, not just the first think about it, not go with the first reaction, you know, right. the situation. It's like, just, just sit back and 
see what happens. Yeah, see, watch <laughs> it develop. You've talked about the therapy that you've been through in the past. Is therapy an ongoing part of your life? Yes, I think very much. I mean, even if I don't go to see a therapist, it's something that I, I use those tools that I learned during those sessions and I apply them over and over whenever I kind of recognize those feelings. But, um, you know, the kind of stint that I went to therapy and it got to a certain point where she told me, she's like, I think you're good, Ryan. Like, I don't <laughs> think you need to come next week kind of a thing. You know, yeah. I'm like, all right. And then I hit the road. And, but, you know, like I hadn't been on tour in a couple of years and I had a couple of kids and this things were happening, you know, with the new record. And I was about to go on, a little anxious about going on the road again for a long time. And so I, I went and, and saw her, just called her up. I was like, hey, Mickey, you mind if I pop in just for a minute? And I'm about to head on this tour, and she's like, how you doing? And I'm going, I'm good, but, you know, I just got a lot of stuff going on, and, like, I just needed to kind of clear it, get it off my chest. It's like know? a car. You got to go in for a tune-up before a tune you up, you know? get and the I, road. It was great, you know. I, I So at the, the, do I think I have to go every week? I think if I, uh, I think I would recognize the signs, hopefully, if I did feel like I needed to kind of go more often. And uh, that she, I think she, the therapist would tell you, like, why don't you come back and see me next week? You know, but uh, yeah. it, I, I didn't have any quarrels or problems with going and checking in. And you, you talked know. about these tools that you learn that you use a lot. What's uh, what's the tool you go to most often? I think one that I use the most is, uh, is that it's okay to be kind of sad and not suppress that whenever you get sad. You know, I think talking about that uh, area that I was from, that uh, not necessarily say that my dad personally or my mom said that, like it wasn't okay to cry. There wasn't really anybody that was like, oh, don't be a wimp, don't cry or anything like that. But that's very much the culture I grew up in, you know? Right. Um, and so I think nowadays, if, if I'm thinking about my parents or anything like that, if, I mean, it makes me sad. To, I'll just sit there and just let myself be sad for a few hours or all day if I want to be you know yeah. and usually that's about all it takes I mean because if you if you push that away yeah it's just going to be waiting for you later or it's going to come totally. out some other yeah. way or you know my wife will come home and she'll be like what's you all right what's going on and I'll be like oh nothing I'm fine <laughs> like, whatever you know it's like I don't do that anymore it's like she comes up and she's like what's going on I'm like I'm oh, just thinking about my old man you know I'm thinking about my mom she, you know she's like you all right I'm like nope you know, and then we'll and talk okay about it for a minute. Be... And then the next day it's like, pfft, it's all good. So it's that whole not running away, spend your whole life running from it. Just learn how to live with it and let it be there in your back pocket. Um, I guess I keep saying all the time, like keep looking out the, the windshield, not the rear view mirror, but just know that everything's in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> that way you don't get carsick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a button, right? That's a good one. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is a producer for All Things Digital. We put all our brains and ears and mouths together to edit the show, and Phyllis Fletcher is the editor. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. 
John Peters was recording engineer for this episode. Technical director is John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation about this, yeah, that can be pretty awkward, but Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK and MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation there with your fellow thwadballs. Good place to hang out. On our next episode, Anil Dash on parenting in the age of YouTube. And it's so pervasive in culture. And and it really stuck with me when he was about three or four. And this happened with some of his friends as well. So it's not just us. He he did a, a somersault in the living room. And, you know, at, at three, that's, that's pretty good. So he's like, okay, he did a somersault. And then he stood up and he put his arms out and he said, please like and subscribe. Oh, God. That 100% <laughs> happened. Oh, And I was wow. mortified. I was like, oh, my God. This is, I've ruined my child with YouTube, you know? Yeah. I was just, I was just, oh, I can't believe this. And I've had half a dozen other dads tell me the same thing. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Sad clown, tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.